my goal today to discover what Jesus meant by calling you the light of the world. I've often read through that portion, even in the full-time ministry, and wondered what in the world could that possibly mean? But I realized that God has called us together as a community, a covenant community of lights. A covenant community of lights. But I wanted to know what it does mean to be a light and what does it mean to shine before the world, especially when it comes to the part of so that they may see your good works. Have you ever wondered about that? So that they may see your good works. Jesus does not give them an option. He does not ask them to become a light or to work at becoming a light. He says simply, yes, you are the light of the world. There is no debate regarding this. Jesus did not look for the input. He didn't ask them what they would like to do with their life. He knows what's his purpose for you. <laughs> and um, he didn't say, hey, what would you like to be when you grow up? He said, you are the light of the world. This is your purpose. This is your function. This is your identity. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. He simply told them how things are. And there are two basic ways that scriptures can be handled. Of course, we've talked about this before. You have exegesis and you have eisegesis. Exegesis is when you draw from the, from the portion of scriptures the, the author's original intent, what was meant by what was said. The Bible is very emphatically, is emphatically clear about it. There is no personal interpretation of scriptures. All scriptures mean the same thing. To everyone. Now there can be a million applications, but one interpretation, and no personal interpretation, but a corporate interpretation. And there are means and ways of knowing what that is, and today we're going to do just that. But it's called exegesis. When you take the passage and you draw from the passage only what was meant and nothing more. Because if you go to eisegesis, that's where the person is actually putting into scriptures what they need for scriptures to say or what they want scriptures to say. And so we're going to exegete this portion of scriptures as we look through uh, what Han just read there, Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, at least the first portion, word for word. Jesus starts His declaration with, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. It is as if Jesus was pointing a finger at them, saying, this isn't for anybody else. This is for you. You are the light of the world. In other words, philosophers are not the light of the world. Psychologists are not the light of the world. You, Christian, believer, you are the light of the world. Humanism is not a light. Humanism is not the light. Rationalism is not the light of the world. Pragmatism is not the light of the world. 
and they do not shine forth God's truth. Christian, you shine forth God's truth. That's why he said you are the light of the world, distinguishing them from all of the philosophy that was going on in the day. Political activists and social justice warriors do not bring God's light to this world. They cannot. They don't have it to give. Believer, you are that light. That's why Jesus was so emphatically stating, you are the light of this world. What did Jesus have in mind when he defined them as light? What were the disciples supposedly like that made Jesus equate them to the light of this world? What were they like? Here is where exegesis really helps us understand what Jesus meant by what he said. You see, the you refers to everybody previously mentioned in the portion of scriptures. So right here, we started reading Matthew 5 from verse 14. But we have to go before verse 14 in order to see who is the profile or what is the profile of the person Jesus is referring to when he said, now, here's the profile and you who match this profile, you are the light of this world. So let's look at who Jesus was introducing, what person he was introducing to when he mentioned you. And that portion, let's go back to Matthew 5, but let's go a little earlier to verse 3, and we read through to verse 11, a very well-known portion. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Well, this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the question is, who are those who have these beautiful attitudes? All these beautiful attributes. Well, the you in verse 3, Jesus had in mind, are the poor in spirit. That's who he was saying is the light of the world, the poor in spirit. The you in verse 4 are those who mourn. Those are the ones who are the light in this world, those who mourn. The you Jesus was referring to in verse 5 are those who are meek. The you in verse 6 are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The you in verse 7 are those who are merciful. The you in verse 8 are those who are pure in heart. The you in verse 9 are those who are the peacemakers. The you in verse 10 and 12 are those who are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That is the profile of the person Jesus was pointing to when he said, You are the light of this world. 
When Jesus points to you, He included those who are part of this list. It's to these that Jesus said, you are you. Then He says, the next word is are. You are the light of this world. It doesn't say you would be, you could be, you should be the light of this world. No, He says that you are the light of this world and I will make sure of that. In other words, you are the one that fulfills this profile and I'll make sure it shines in this dark world. I'm choosing no other. I'm choosing you. The third word that we are looking at is the. You are the light of the world. This is a definite article. You are not a light. You are the light and there is no other light but you. In other words, what he's saying is there is no other possible way for you to shine in this dark world other than fulfilling that profile person. You being meek, you living according to all of these beautiful attributes, mourning and being merciful and being pure in heart and being a peacemaker, this is how you shine in this dark world. The fourth word is light. The word light indicates a witness. Now I've often wondered, okay, what does it mean to be a light in this world? And then I thought, well, what I should do is I should be kind to people and I'll be a light. I should help old ladies across the street. I should mow my, my, my neighbor's yard. I should shovel the old lady's driveway when it snows. This is being a light. I should live sacrificially. This is being a light. I should give to goodwill all the time, and that makes me a light. I should never confront people, and that makes me a light. I should always be agreeable, and that makes me a light. Uh, you, you know, and so we have all these different definitions of light, but let's look into what I believe Jesus meant here. Almost about four years ago, uh, I happened to be an eyewitness <laughs> to a to the dog next door attacking my other neighbor. And so about two years ago now, I had a court date where I was the eyewitness to this event. And it was actually held in, on Zoom, can you believe it? And in this court proceeding, I was required to shed light on the details of that event and how it played out moment by moment. And here I was shedding a light, I was being a light regarding the truth concerning a situation. Can you see that? A witness in a court of law brings certain details to light. A light shines on something and illuminates it. It reveals something. Jesus was the light when He came. That was what John said. Why? Because He came and He revealed the Father to us. It reveals something. It, it gives clarity. A witness shines a light to illuminate and reveal the truth about God and the knowledge about God. You are this light. You are this witness. You testify to the truth that you hold in your hands. You testify to the truth and the knowledge of the Scriptures revealing the only hope that this world may have. The only hope that this fallen world has is the hope that you hold in your hands. The truth that this hope speaks of, which is 
God's plan of their salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the way for you to be a light is to be a testimony or a witness of this light. So thus far, we've established that this is our mission given to us by Jesus, that we are to shine forth the light of Christ by being a witness of the truth of Christ and the knowledge of God that we find in Scripture. We are not to shine forth the light of psychology. We are not to shine forth the light of philosophy. We are not to shine forth the light of humanism or the light of rationalism or pragmatism or any other ism. Not a light that highlights hardship or the light that highlights oppression or the light that reveals disparities or human struggles around the world. This is not you shining a light. You shine a light by testifying to God's truth that you find in Scripture. Revealing God's sovereign plan of salvation for man. Man being saved from God's wrath against man's sin. And then Jesus gives a picture. He says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. And it cannot be hidden. There is no mistake in what Jesus was attempting to communicate here. His disciples are to be like a lit up city, elevated for all to see. But when a light is elevated on a hill, of course, it exposes things around it. When a light is exposed, it becomes a beacon. It becomes a point of reference. That's what a lighthouse is. Point of reference, a beacon. It's always high so everybody can see it. It's not hidden. It's exposed. And that is what Jesus is saying to you and I today. As a covenant community, believers in Christ... We are to be this light exposed, sit, sitting upon a hill so everybody can receive light. Then Jesus gives us a second picture right here. He says, you are the light of the world, sitting on a hill. Then he says, lamp on a lampstand. He says, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. Then it says, and it, this lamp, gives light to all who are in the house. It, this one lamp, gives light to all who are in the house. Can you see that it is singular, all is plural. So one strategically elevated lamp that burns will light up all who are in the room. In other words, it takes you. <laughs> it takes one. It is amazing how one fiery Christian in a school system or in a, in a classroom or even in a church, can just fire up everybody around them. It's like one congregation can fire up a city or even a nation. And then after this, we see that Jesus moves from instruction to illustration, light on a hill, light a lamp on a lampstand. And then he goes to exhortation. And this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is really exciting. Jesus gives the challenge, a choice that needs to be made by you and I. In Matthew 15, verse 16a, he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. 
that they may see your good works. Now, when it comes to exegesis, it's actually nice to understand how to do hermeneutics, which is first and second year are going through it right now. But you kind of know exactly what the subject matter of the portion of Scripture is, so you know what Jesus is talking about. So you're already on this track, and you're not grabbing at straws trying to wonder what he's saying. All right? So now he's talking about our good works. He's talking about this very same person who we see practiced all those good attributes, the beautiful attributes that he mentioned. And he said, now, you are this light, and you should be at a place where everybody can see these good works of yours. Ah, so those are the good works. This is the action point Jesus is uh, telling us in his meeting. This is how we carry out being the light of the world. Good is, in fact, a Greek word which means, is a Greek word which means attractive or beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see somebody live according to the Beatitudes. Have you seen somebody that humble? <laughs> Have you seen somebody that's meek? Have you seen somebody that mourns their own sin? Have you seen somebody like that? That's a beautiful attribute. It's an attractive attribute. That beautiful, well, that word beautiful is, in fact, the title of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5. It's a subject matter. The Beatitudes, which means the beautiful attitudes, the beautiful uh, attributes. In other words, these attributes and attitudes are, in fact, your good works. Let me say it again. These attitudes and attributes that Jesus just mentioned in chapter 5, these are your good works. The conclusion, therefore, is that this is how to let your light shine. How can I put my lamp on a lampstand? How can I allow my light to be like a city on a hill for all to see? What are these good works that I have for all to see? I'd like for us to look at them and make sure we understand what it is that we have been called to. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when it gets to politics, you'll hear people say, blessed are the poor. No, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy. Those are poor in spirit. Who are those who declare spiritual bankruptcy? Those who completely rely and depend on Christ to make them spiritually alive. Those who are completely relying upon Jesus to make them spiritually alive. You were dead in your sins, and that's why I love to teach the doctrine of total depravity. Not utter depravity, but total depravity. In other words, you aren't as bad as you possibly could be. You could walk out here and be even more nasty than what you were yesterday if you wanted to, right? You're not utterly depraved. You're not as bad as possibly can be, but you are totally depraved, meaning that every part of who you are has been touched by sin. And that's what I love about Reformed theology that Reformed theology does not shy away from the effects of sin on human nature. 
Armenianism pretend like sin did affect human nature to a degree, but not totally, only to a, to a degree, leaving enough untouched within human nature to actually choose righteousness and choose Christ, His very enemy. <laughs> their minds are at enmity with God. Their minds see God as enemy, and yet they choose Him and embrace Him. That's not possible for somebody who has been touched by sin in his mind. And so Reformed theology really shows how every part of who you are, your mind, your understanding, your will, your desires, your emotions, your heart has all been touched by sin. Your eyes have been blinded by it. That's why you cannot see your need for a salvation until God actually opens your eyes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? I didn't say the whole thing, but you get what I'm saying. It's that grace touches you and opens your eyes so that you can see. And so who is the poor in spirit? The person who admits, I am completely and utterly spiritually bankrupt. I am dead. Spiritually dead. But he comes and he makes me alive because he loved me. Not because I was valuable, but because he loved me. For God so loved that he saved. He didn't so value you and therefore saved you. He so loved you and therefore saved you. Then it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. This is the second beautiful good work of yours. Mourning. You're like, oh, so I'm saved by good works. No, wait, watch. <laughs> Hang in there, tiger. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not talking about those who mourn the loss of a loved one. It's talking about those who mourn the loss of their innocence before God. This is talking about repentance. Those who mourn the, lo the loss of their own innocence, mourning their own sin and weeping because they have violated God's holiness, they will be comforted. Why? Because they're the ones that know they're forgiven. Didn't you feel comforted this morning after you knew that you have repented before the Lord and God forgives those who come to Him in repentance? Of course, it's a, it's a very comforting thing to know that you are forgiven. So this is the second way your light shines is when you walk in repentance and the fruits of your repentance is evident in the wake of your life. The fruits of your repentance is evident in the wake of your life. None of us are perfect. Nobody is disqualified because they're imperfect. The problem is, is when this person, this imperfect person walks through life he hurts many people all around him, but you don't ever see any kind of sign of repentance behind him. <laughs> he, does, he just leaves a bunch of casualties behind him as he walks through life. And then you see the other person. You see the Apostle Paul. He walks through life, and trust me, when he walks into heaven, when he walked into heaven, there was cheering and shouting and rejoicing by even those whom he persecuted. That's what Christianity is like. And here's the Apostle Paul walking through life, 
and you see the fruits of repentance in his life. This is David. This is everyone in scriptures that walked in repentance before the Lord. And this is you. This is how your light shines. You go like, oh, but still, it's still a work, isn't it? Blessed are those who mourn. No, it's not. It's a good work that's possible and that's made, it's made possible because repentance is in fact a gift. It's something God has gifted you that you are able to do. You couldn't repent until God gave you repentance. You couldn't have faith until you were given faith. These are gifts from God. So if you can repent, thank the Lord for giving you a heart that repents. Let me ask you, did God give you a new heart because you repented? Or did God take out the stony, stubborn heart and give you a heart so you can repent? Yeah? Did you come to God because, or let me say it this way, did God give you a new heart because you came to Him? Or did He give you a new heart so that you can come to Him? Which one, folks? Yeah, He gave you a new heart. That's why you can believe. That's why you can run to Him and repent. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that, not of yourselves, that is a gift from God. He has gifted us with that. Then it says in verse 5, Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those, let me just quickly qualify again. The previous, I said, therefore repentance is not a work. Why not? Because it's a gift to you. Now, of course, you're responsible with a gift that's been given you. But it's not a work, it's a gift. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who willingly humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, they are meek. I love the word picture of meekness. It's this little girl walking through a beautiful garden holding uh, on a, uh, the rope that's tied around the horse. And following her as she's walking through this garden is this mighty beast behind her, gently just following her. When she stops, the horse stops. And then she says, come on, black beauty. Let's walk. And then he keeps walking behind her. Now, he could trample her in no time because he is so powerful and so strong and so able. But he doesn't because he's meek. He takes all of his strength and he allows her to guide the strength that he has. What do you do with all of your strength? Are you meek or are you stubborn? Are you meek or are you contrary? Always argumenting, argumentative about everything you see God says in Scriptures. The meek is the one who opens up the Bible and says, Yes, Lord. With all of my strength, yes, Lord. Just like that horse, with all of his strength, he says, Let's go. I'll follow you. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. 
That is the meek person, not the weak person, not the feeble, but the one who's strong and says, here I am, Lord, I love you with my strength, with that which I'm good at. The gifts you have bestowed upon me, here I am, worshiping and serving you with the life that I have. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then it says, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for a right to be right with God. Those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not their own. A righteousness not of themselves, but a righteousness of God, which can only be found in Christ Jesus. How often do you celebrate the fact that God has placed His righteousness upon you? You are righteous with a righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you glory in that? Do you celebrate that? Do you thank God for that? Are you grateful for that? Are you hungry to understand this? We talk about, oh, let's talk about double imputation. And it becomes boring to people, right? <laughs> but this is how God made you righteous. Double imputation, or the doctrine of double imputation is when on the cross, two things happen. All of your sin was accounted into His account, Christ's account, and all of God's righteousness was placed upon you. Your sin on Him, His righteousness on you, and He said it is finished. You are righteous with God's righteousness, not your own. Do you want to be right with God? How desperate are you to be right with God? How valuable is it for you to hear that you have been made righteous with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Your answers to those questions determine how thirsty you are and how hungry you are for righteousness. And if you are, you're shining. Here's another way for you to find out how, hunger, how you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Have you ever done something because you chose to do it and you planned to do it and you willed to do it and you went and did it anyway, knowing that it was a sin? And after you did it, you went, God, what a fool I am. I so long for the days I was innocent of this sin. I so long to be made right and to walk rightly before, I'll, before my God. If that's you, if, if you have such a desire for that, that is you shining your light because you hunger and you thirst after righteousness. Now, you are righteous in, 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 in Christ. You already are righteous in Christ. My point is, is that now an afterthought? Has that just become a religious idea that you stack in the back of your brain? Or is it something that's true to you? And if it's true to you, you are a light shining in a dark world. So in other words, if you pour in spirit, you're a light shining. And those that see you identifying your poverty in spirit, they see your good work and they will glorify God. If you mourn, in other words, 
You are broken over your sin before God. That is a light before the world. And they see your good work and they glorify God. If you are gentle, you take your strength and you say, God, I will love you and serve you with my strength also, not just with my mind and my heart. That is them seeing you shining. Because nobody else is like that. Do you see people in the mall like this? No. You are different. You are a peculiar people. You are a holy nation. You are God's priesthood. And you shine forth the truth of God's attributes that He has placed in you. Then it says right here in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who are the merciful? There are those who are so very aware of the amount of mercy that God has shown them. They are so aware of the mercy that God has showed them that they in turn naturally show mercy to others. You know, people always say what the heart's full of the mouth overflows of. Well, this is true when it comes to mercy. You know a person that's humbled by the amount of mercy they receive from God. They are so humbled by the amount of mercy they receive from God, it overflows to others around them. They show mercy to others. They are merciful to others. There's a difference between showing mercy and being merciful. The person who shows mercy, he bites his tongue. I'm not going to lash out at that person now. He, he bites his tongue and he actually succeeds at keeping his lips zipped for a moment. He can have spurts of remaining silent. But the merciful isn't the one who's putting a mask over his mouth and, you know, harnessing himself and strapping himself down so he doesn't respond. No, the merciful is the one who doesn't have to be strapped down because they are all merciful. That's who they are. That's not what they try to show. That's who they are. And so blessed are the merciful the one who's so been touched by the fact that God has been abundantly merciful to them to the point where they now are merciful to others. And then it says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those, who heart, those whose hearts are undefiled by doubt, they shine like lights. Those who have their hearts set on God's promises without wavering, they don't, have, they don't have double hearts. Their heart is pure. They have no deceit in their heart. Their heart's not double-minded. Eve's heart became double-minded when she bought into what the snake was saying to her. Trusted God, believed the snake. I used to believe God, now I'm starting to wonder and I'm starting to believe the snake. Double-minded heart. A divided heart is not a pure heart. Blessed are the pure heart, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those hearts who are undefiled are the ones who shine like lights in this world. That's the one thing you must admit about the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul, before he, before his experience with Jesus, before he got hit off of his, his animal, the Apostle Paul was what you oftentimes see in the Middle East. And you see people who are so radical in what they believe. <laughs> he was chasing after every Christian he could find, kicking open doors of homes and trying to see where they are and who they are and persecuting them and getting them uh, before judges. And then he meets Jesus. And then he's exactly the same way, the opposite direction. <laughs> he is like, there's like nobody that passionate. Here he is on his horse, chasing, 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 chasing after Christians, wanting to kill them. He meets Jesus. Now he's just chasing after Jesus, building churches around the whole world, and there's no end to this man's work that he did. It's an amazing thing. Well, why? That's a pure heart right there. He's not wondering what he's going to do at the end of his life with what I'm going to do. <laughs> he didn't have a bucket list other than God's kingdom. He said that. Didn't have a bucket list outside of God's kingdom. I mean, he was in boots and all. Pure heart. And I often wonder if that is why God used him the way he did. Because he was chosen even before he turned. Because that's how he was. Then, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Who are the peacemakers? Who shine light into this dark world because of their peacemaking? Well, those who insistent, incessantly share the gospel whenever possible to anyone that moves and lives. <laughs> the gospel is the only means by which a sin-sick human can be reconciled in peace to a holy and righteous God. Those are the peacemakers. Again, our world really twists the idea of peacemaking because they want to say peacemakers are those who stop wars in this world. No, peacemakers are not the ones who bring peace between nations, but be, bring peace between a human, a sinful human, and his creator. So those who love to share the gospel, those are shining a light in this world. And then it says in verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. <laughs> And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. When you see people saying all, all kinds of evil against you because you are holding on to a scripture, do you fall apart? You ought not. The Bible says you're blessed because of it. When somebody insults you, do you feel rejected? You ought to be blessed. Jesus said you are blessed if somebody does Reject you because of him. Then verse 12, it says, Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here we have the profile of the person who is the person Jesus said you are the light in this world. And you ought to be put upon a mountain so the whole city can see because you testify to what I can do inside of a person. 
Because if you'd noticed all of these attributes, you didn't know that you were poor in spirit until God opened your eyes. It was His work in you that allowed you to be poor in spirit or to, be, to recognize that you are poor in spirit. It was Him opening my eyes. And when my eyes were opened, because for most part of my life, I, I didn't think I was all that bad until I came into really Reformed theology and I saw total depravity and I saw it was everywhere in Scriptures. I used to think Jesus died on a cross for me because I was so valuable. He loved, you know, he wanted my value, but I realized, no, it was because he loved me even when I had no value. I was dead in my sin. I was totally depraved. And that is what's so stunning about the gospel. That is what makes the gospel so incredibly powerful that God would do what he did for a worthless sinner who is dead in his sin. But when God opened my eyes, it was His doing, I was able to see the truth about me in comparison to the truth about God. And I recognized my poverty in spirit. And so every single one of these, those who mourn, how do you mourn? Well, when God gives you the gift of repentance. Again, it's His work in you. Every one of these points inside of the... That profile of a person is God's working. And when the world sees this, they see light. When the world looks at that person, they see the light of God and they will glorify Him. And that is who you and I have been called to. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. I pray, Father God, that You touch every one of our minds, our hearts, our understanding, when we peek into your word, Father, that we will see the depths of your word. That we will see your will, that we will see your way for us, that we will see your purpose that you've called us to. Lord, that your calling will be so loud within us that it will ring through our hearts day in and day out. You have called us to be this person. You have called us to be a light in this world. That's why we are here. Otherwise, why didn't you just die on a cross and take us with you immediately? No, you placed us here because we are here to glorify your name in a lost world. Thank you, Father, for this great mandate that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.